Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from BC's Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is an episode originally produced for the 2021 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, you're listening to the podcast of the 2021 BC Organic Conference. Hey everyone, it's Jordan, your podcast host. On this episode, guest interviewer Abra Brin, who is a policy advisor with Farm Folk City Folk, interviews Darren Qualman in a wide-ranging conversation about the climate crisis in the context of our food system. Darren is the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action for the National Farmers Union. He is the author of the 2019 report, Tackling the Farm Crisis and the Climate Crisis, and the 2019 book, Civilization Critical, Energy, Food, Nature, and the Future. He farmed for two decades and has academic degrees in history, biology, and political studies. Darren also happens to be our keynote speaker for our live online session on February 28th, where he'll be expanding on some of the themes you'll hear in this conversation. I'll leave it at that. Talk to you soon. Darren Qualman, why don't you introduce yourself? And if you would be so kind as also to introduce the Farmers for Climate Solutions, that would be lovely. Okay. Thanks, Abra. My name is Darren Qualman. I'm the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action with the National Farmers Union. Uh, NFU is a national organization of family farmers and non-farmers who support the NFU's work. Uh, they can join as associate members and we're at nfu.ca. And the National Farmers Union, along with a number of other groups, has uh, put together a wonderful and exciting coalition called Farmers for Climate Solutions. And we are a growing coalition that is bringing forward to government and the public uh, farmer supporting solutions that also reduce emissions. Thank you. And I'm Abra Brin, and I am a policy advisor with Farm Folk City Folk. Farm Folk City Folk is based in British Columbia and has been uh, working to support sustainable, vibrant food systems in the province since 1995, I believe and um, has been working on uh, climate change for the last number of years. And my involvement with the Farmers for Climate Solutions comes through Farm Folk City Folk and the Climate Solutions Project that is currently underway, which is a multi-year project to address climate change through agriculture and food systems in the province of BC. So it's great to get a chance to talk to you because you know way more about this stuff than I do. And, and love spending uh, time with the numbers and stuff. So I think we'll have an interesting conversation. So the first thing I think we should be diving into is uh, the question of methane. It uh, didn't get a lot of attention in climate change uh, narratives over the last number of years. Uh, and I think is gaining a little more attention because it is uh, understandably much more significant than CO2 in terms of in, um, damage, but there's a lot of complexity around methane. So Darren, if you'd be so kind as to explain to us uh, where methane comes from and its impact on climate change and uh, anything else we need to know about methane, that would be great. For sure. I'd, I'd love to do that because methane is both interesting and also problematic, but also very hopeful. It gives us one of our few hopeful options around uh, greenhouse gases and climate change. But before I do that, I just, I just want to say, before we delve into that particular gas and some of, get into the, the details here, I just want to say that in all of this, um, the thing that we really are, are focused on is, is farmers and, and rural communities and uh, 
farm income and the number of farmers. So even though we're going to talk about cattle and methane and that sort of thing, it's really farmers and farm income that, that really is, is at the, the foundation of all this. And uh, I'll say at the beginning and just at the end again, I'll just give two reports that uh, people can refer to and they'll really form a lot of the background and some of the detail around what we're going to say here. Uh, the first came out last year, 2019. It's called Tackling the Farm Crisis and the Climate Crisis. And the other one is uh, from 2008 called The Farm Crisis and the Cattle Sector that really looks at uh, the economic crisis in cattle production that is ongoing. And I'll, I'll repeat the name of those two in the end and uh, maybe they can go in the show notes as well. So uh, back to methane. As many listeners might know, there are three main greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide, the one that gets all the press and is responsible for about a little over two thirds of the warming. Uh, nitrous oxide largely comes from fertilizer. We might talk about that a little bit, but uh, the focus here really is methane. So there's three main greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. Uh, methane is uh, made up of carbon and hydrogen. It's about 28 times more powerful than CO2 when it comes to causing warming. And that's one of the reasons it's a big problem. Methane comes from four main sources. One is energy production, so oil and gas and coal. Uh, some of you might know that, uh, that uh, natural gas is largely methane. And so when they produce natural gas, when they produce oil, uh, there's natural gas associated with it. So the oil and gas sector is a big source of methane. Landfills are a big source of methane. When you, when you bury organic matter and there's no air and it decomposes, it gives off a lot of methane. Rice paddy agriculture, because the growing takes place underwater, and again, there's, there's no air there, it's another source of methane. And, and the, what we're going to focus on today is uh, the, the, five, the fourth source, and that is cattle and, and other ruminants like sheep. Uh, the reason they can eat grass and we can't is because they have multiple stomachs, and those stomachs are full of bacteria and other organisms that break down that cellulose and lignin. And when those organisms uh, break that down, they give off methane and that methane comes out the mouths of cattle. So uh, that's a, a little bit about methane. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll say about it is it's an opportunity because it's a short-lived gas. And uh, unlike CO2, which might stay in the atmosphere for a thousand years, methane only stays in for 10 or 20. So if we could find ways uh, through the oil and gas sector and other changes, if we could find ways to reduce methane production, we might be only a decade or so away from seeing atmospheric levels of methane actually start to fall, which is something that will be much, much, much harder with CO2, which is such a long-lived gas. So that's methane 101. Wow. So you talked about ruminants, so it's cattle and sheep. Um, are there any other domestic species that are particularly a problem? And is the focus on cattle mostly because of the number of cattle relative to the other species? Uh, yeah, and I don't want to label cattle, cattle as a problem. They're both a problem and a, a solution for sure. Uh, but uh, anything that eats grass would give off methane. So that would be cattle, sheep, goats, um, even to some extent, horses, alpacas. So why is it that cattle become has sort of become the poster child for for methane and climate change, like one of the very first international reports I remember seeing on climate change was Livestock's Long Shadow, which uh, pointed a big finger and waved it at the cattle uh, sector because of its impact on climate change. Why do you think cattle has, has had such a bad 
rap, gotten such a bad rap out of all of this? Yeah, it's all around methane. And, and what you find when you work with climate, uh, climate and emissions and the livestock, et cetera, uh, the, you, you sort of dig in deeper and deeper and, and, and the picture really changes. But the first thing a lot of people do here is that cattle are a big methane emissions problem. And uh, that's, that's uh, the case to some extent, uh, more than a third of all the emissions in Canadian agriculture are coming from cattle. Uh, it's a little, a little more in some provinces like British Columbia, a little less in some other provinces. But uh, yeah, so the first thing we know and when it comes to cattle and climate is that when they digest grass, they, they produce methane and methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. So I know that you have talked about that cattle are also a source of hope and opportunity and they um, offer solutions and there are other environmental um, benefits that they provide. Uh, they talk about co-benefits. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and that's where this begins to get really interesting because it, cattle are also a tremendous source of solutions. Um, both on climate and the larger ecosystem. So cattle are a key part of, of soil health. When cattle graze on grassland, that grassland can increase in soil organic carbon and soil organic matter. And you can literally build soil by grazing well and uh, by having deep-rooted multi-species grass. Uh, cattle also cycle nutrients on, on mixed farms. So if we were talking about cropping systems, we've spent a lot of time talking about nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is really the big problem in agriculture. And one thing that cattle can do is help farmers be less dependent on nitrogen fertilizer. They can cycle nutrients through their root manure. Some farmers have really uh, dug into this and, and really focused on soil building and they've developed uh, ways of farming, agroecology, and, and also regenerative agriculture. And those systems really have cattle at the core of them. They, they have very diverse crop mixes and uh, the cattle uh, graze in the crops. They feed some of those crops to the cattle, etc. So cattle are a big part of regenerative agriculture and regenerative agriculture is probably the fastest way that you can build soil and, and capture carbon in soil. Um, Cattle facilitate more complex rotations. You know, often if in places where there aren't cattle, you see farmers growing uh, two or three crops, corn and soybeans perhaps, or canola and wheat where I am. When you bring cattle into the mix, you can have more complex rotations that include maybe perennials. And the other thing is, and it's, it's really a long list, I won't go through the whole list, but in terms of what, how cattle can be climate solutions. But one, the last one I'll, I'll note out of that long list, is that uh, cattle can be part of production systems that use a lot less fossil fuel. Uh, it's very hard to imagine a cropping system that uses very little fossil fuel, but cattle production systems actually can operate on, on very, very little uh, fossil fuel. So, you know, cattle are a solution that way. And, and of course, it, you know, it's just a lot of land that shouldn't be cropped, can't be cropped across Canada. And, and cattle allow people to farm that and they allow farm production and, and food production on that land. And, you know, if, if as some might advocate, the, the number of cattle was reduced dramatically, some of that land might be taken out of grass and forage, put into crop land, and then that would create a whole bunch of emissions too. So we have to imagine what might happen on the landscape if it were not for cattle. 
and there's some very high emission possibilities that, that would be brought in if, if cattle weren't there. I like that you've commented that cattle can be part of regenerative agriculture or a key part of it because um, I was just reading, uh, we have a new minister of, or a reappointed minister of agriculture as of our the um, October BC election. And one of her mandates is to support the creation of a regenerative agricultural network. And the mandate does refer to, um, an, to an agri-technology link but I'd be much more excited and interested in having a beef link into, or a cattle link into a regenerative agriculture network. Um, so how about if we get into all the different ways in which cattle are raised, because uh, there can be huge differences in terms of, as you say, fossil fuel use, but also nitrogen fertilizer use. Uh, the scale of uh, like the land scale is, can have a real impact, carrying capacity of the land, as well as just uh, the density of the, the management production practices. So how about you uh, tell us a little bit about some of the links between the management practices and um, the other, the benefits that can be generated from those. Sure, thanks. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to dig into this. So uh, one way the cattle can be raised is, is on grass. And when, when that happens, they really maximize a, a lot of benefits around soil and uh, diverse grassland ecosystems and, and biodiversity. Uh, other cattle uh, are raised in, in confinement. Uh, in Alberta, for instance, there's a lot of feedlots where cattle are fed grain. An interesting things, thing happens when you take cattle off grass, the methane emissions go down. When they're in a feedlot and eating grain, they're not digesting all of that grass, cellulose, and lignin. So the methane emissions actually go down. So to some extent, it's, it's the cattle on grass that, that creates the methane problem. And when you take them off grass, that methane goes down. But that's only the beginning of it because that grain that they're eating in those feedlots is itself the product of huge fossil fuel inputs and especially nitrogen fertilizer. So there's this whole plume of upstream emissions that goes, that goes into that. So really what we wanna do is we want to maximize the benefits we get from cattle while sort of managing some of those emissions. And probably the best way to do that is to have cattle grazing on grass. Despite the methane, uh, we wanna have them grazing on grass because that's where we get the benefits, the ecosystem benefits, the soil building benefits. And, and the key thing to remember here is we, cattle produce methane, but that's a completely natural thing. Ruminants have been grazing on grass for millions of years. And many will know that on the central plains of North America, there was a lot of bison. So it, it's, not, it, it's not really the case that we wanna somehow solve the methane problem by making it go away. The methane that comes out of cattle is, is natural. In some ways, like this carbon dioxide that comes out of us is natural. Um, and even, even in agriculture, humans domesticated cattle and other grazing livestock about 10,000 years ago. And for 9,900 years, the atmosphere was not changed by human livestock production. It's only in the last century that methane emissions and methane concentrations have skyrocketed. Uh, I should have mentioned in the beginning, methane is about three times higher. The concentration in the atmosphere is about three times higher. And that's really a function of just the last 100 years. So for 99% of the time that we raise cattle, 
uh, largely grazing on grass, it didn't affect the atmosphere and the climate. So at the beginning, you mentioned that a big part of what uh, is the focus of our work and uh, I, I think a shared concern is the livelihood of farmers. And I have to say, um, the market for grass-finished beef has been a hard one to create. And as someone who grew up on a farm where we grazed our own grass-finished beef, I personally think it's absolutely the best beef out there. But the consuming public has gotten awfully um, ac accustomed to grain-finished beef. So for me, in all of this, I always see a role for the consumer. And I think uh, there always needs to be a lot of education. But for some, it's like, I mean, I think that the, the possibility of converting people through the experience of tasting like a fresh harvested heritage tomato or a fabulous locally grown carrot could hopefully be the same with grass finished beef, convincing people that in fact, uh, grass finished beef not only will contribute to positive measures around climate solutions, but also be a joy in their mouth. So I'm hoping that uh, that could happen down the road. Um, so is there anything else? Uh, what about the difference between uh, cattle raised for beef and those that are in the dairy sector? Is there anything there you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I would, but just let me, let me add one more piece to what you just said previously. Not only can that grass-finished beef be wonderful for the land and, and wonderful on the plate, it's also tremendously nutritious. I was at a conference where the, the person that was giving the talk about beef was literally a brain surgeon. And he happened to have equipment in his lab that looked at the fat composition of, of brain tissue. And he used it to measure the fat composition of beef. And he compared grain and grass finished beef and the omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. And the ratios for grass finished beef approached those of fish oils. Like it really is a, a different set of fats and, and tremendously healthy compared to the some of the grain finished beef. So yeah, it can be more nutritious as well. Uh, I do think there's huge opportunities for high quality grass finished, locally raised and locally slaughtered, slaughtered beef. And I know I'm pretty excited that the BC Cattlemen's Association has recently secured a lease to a federally registered plant, which will increase the opportunities for getting BC raised and BC processed beef into the grocery chains and onto people's plates. So there's, there's still a lot of work to go to do to uh, increase people's access to this kind of good quality beef that we're fans of, mutual fans of, but I think that there's some heartening signs there. So I have been deeply involved with the organic sector going back to the mid 1990s and um, have a decided bias in that regard. Um, is there anything worth exploring in terms of uh, organic management practices of cattle that um, there might be some things that they could or should know around reducing um, emissions or maximizing the benefits? Yeah, I think there's some things that organic producers are doing already that are tremendously useful and helpful. One, one is that uh, the feeds that they use when, when they're not grazing the cattle, uh, and sometimes they can't graze all the time. The feed that they use, rather, the, those organic feeds are usually produced without nitrogen and, and other fertilizers and have a much lower emission signature than, uh, than commercial feeds. And the other thing that I, I think I see a lot of organic producers doing 
is using uh, manure very carefully and very efficiently and getting maximized maximum benefit out of that. And sometimes non-organic producers that have recourse to uh, chemical fertilizers aren't, aren't quite as careful in the way they use that manure. So I, I think uh, organic producers have some benefits that way. Thank you. Uh, that's helpful. I do know that access to that manure is really critical for a lot of food production in the province, whether that's it's gardeners or other farmers. And so it uh, certainly is a problem when bad public policy reduces the animals on the, la on the landscape. Um, so what about, do you, what do you think as the future of cattle in Canada? I think there's probably a certain level of pressure on reducing the herd size with regards to climate change and methane emissions. But as you've just indicated, maybe it's more important to address feed and management practices and, and how we finish them. But is there anything else you'd like to say about the future of, can of cattle in Canada in terms of the livelihood of farmers, our food security and the benefits on to the environment? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there to say. I'll, I'll give you the, the good, hopeful part, and then I'll, I'll say some of the challenges. So on, on balance, I think the, the future of for cattle and cattle production is quite bright. Uh, they provide a number of, of benefits. Uh, like everything that humans do, they bring a mixture of, of benefits and problems. Uh, but, you know, that, that's really not the balance between the benefits and the problems isn't really a function of the cattle. It's a function of how we, we manage the cattle, how we, we structure the sector, um, you know, the scale, the, the ways we, that we graze those cattle, uh, the way that we market and then process and all those other things. So I, I think it's up to us to get that part right. But uh, the, the benefits are, are really, uh, really tr tr tremendous. So we need to do everything we can to, to maximize the benefits and minimize the, the downsides. So um, we need to practice best possible grazing, rotational grazing, holistic management, uh, regenerative agriculture, those sorts of things. Uh, we need to make sure that our, our grasslands are, are really healthy. Sometimes in, in tame pastures, you might wanna include uh, legumes and uh, nitrogen fixing plants that make that grass grow better and make it more digestible. Um, we want to do everything we can to maximize the number of farms that have cattle so that we can have that mixed farms and, and uh, nutrient cycling. But there are a lot of challenges to creating that kind of maximum benefit climate compatible livestock sector. And, and we have a lot of those challenges here in Canada. Um, in our report tackling the farm crisis and the climate crisis, we talk about the cattle industrial complex. And what we have, and, and it gets at your point about uh, grass finishing, we have a sector that's really under the control of a few big corporations, uh, Cargill and JBS, uh, tremendous, tremendous control by those packers. And they're shaping it in a way that this is bad for everyone. Um, they're pushing farmers off the landscape. Uh, we've lost about half the cattle producers in a little over a generation. Uh, they're pushing down prices to farmers so that uh, the economics of, of cattle production is very poor. And thus, when, when farmers want to make investments in rotational grazing, you know, putting in water supplies, increased fencing, they're often really challenged to do that. It, it, they just don't have the, the capital to, to change their operations in ways that might reduce emissions. And, and at the same time, they're pushing up prices to consumers. So uh, we've done graphs 
we call the wedge graphs. And uh, you, you can sort of picture them. If you imagine the last uh, 40 or 50 years of cattle prices and hamburger prices, the, the price of cattle is this flat line across right at the bottom of the graph. And the price of hamburger just goes up and up and up and up. And the same thing with uh, pigs and pork chops. The price that the farmers receive has been flat for decades. Yet the price that people pay in the grocery store goes up and up and up and up. And uh, what we're seeing is the packers and retailers taking more and more. So farmers are becoming more efficient. Uh, farmers are becoming more productive. We're, we're setting all kinds of records that way. Yet the benefits are all being captured by the, the few corporations that control those processing and retailing channels. And uh, it makes it hard in a number of ways. It makes it hard to produce uh, alternative beef, organic beef, uh, to get premiums in the market, to sell grass-fed beef, all of those things. So really there's, there's some impediments to getting to the maximum benefit, minimum emission livestock systems we need to get to. Yes, yeah, so I actually recently wrote a chapter that was uh, published in the book uh, called Green Meat with a question mark. And in it, I drew heavily on the work of the, I forget the author's name, but it's called Nature's Metropolis. And it's the history of Chicago and the meatpacking industry there and how it developed. And the thing that was startling to me in reading some of the early legal challenges and essentially the, the evolution of laws in, in North America had a lot to do with a desperate attempt to try and counter the monopoly of a, of a handful of corporate players that controlled the, the development of the meat sector in North America. And uh, once they got a handle on how to ship meat and keep it refrigerated, uh, they've had a stranglehold on the North American meat sector ever since. And so it is a really, really tough knot to untie, that's for sure. Uh, and why I'm, I'm a big fan myself of seeking out and supporting locally produced and locally processed meats through through local abattoirs and the, and the farmers that uh, that use those abattoirs because it allows a much um, a much more equitable supply chain I think and the opportunity to contribute in the kind of regenerative agricultural systems we've been talking about. Yeah, that that book is uh, William Cronin. Yes, exactly. He's and so there's, there's another there's another great book. Now that we're comparing beef packing beef sector books, uh, <laughs> anyone who hasn't read. Uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which is about a century old. That's a fantastic yeah. book and quite a page turner as well. It's about the Chicago stockyards, uh, I think in the 1905s, 1900s, 1910s, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Upton Sinclair was pretty much single-handedly responsible for the development of the Food Safety Acts in North America. Although I, I read something years later where he said he aimed to um, hit the the Americans' heart, and instead he landed in their stomach in terms of getting getting support for the kind of public policy that he wanted to see in place. And maybe that's a lesson we should we should take at this point in in food history and food policy work. So um, we actually still have quite a bit of time left, I think, allotted to us. So maybe we can start to talk about some other things. I'm quite curious about about cover crops. And I know the policy task force and the recovery task force with the Farmers for Climate Solution 
has been doing some explorations of cover cropping systems and of course they're complex and can mean a lot of different things to different people. I think they're fairly common within organic management practices uh, depending on the sector because of how valuable they are in terms of all kinds of co-benefits and ecosystems, you know, bringing in pollinators, building soil health, the biodiversity. I, I know that in my part of the province, uh, the organic farmers here have been really struggling to adapt to crazy growing conditions year after year. And uh, a lot of it has always been really, really heavy, uh, high heat in the summers. But then we also have summers where there is smoke cover that will go on for like a month and a half and is really depressing and lowers temperatures and, and has its own impacts. Um, so I wonder a lot about the bare soils because a lot of the farmers that I know going back quite some time have used drip irrigation as a way to really conserve water and have the water go be targeted at the crop that they're growing out. But then it leaves it can, in, in high heat that we're experiencing now, it can create, create a moonscape essentially and a, and a dust bowl in the alleyways between their cropping systems. And so are the cropping loads. And so I'm kind of wondering um, in terms of cover cropping, if there's um, a really good rationale in terms of the albedo effect, which I really don't understand, I'm hoping that you do. Um, if that could be a, something that's a positive contribute to climate change, could help with soil moisture retention, et cetera. So if you can speak to that, that would be awesome. For sure, thanks. The cover crops bring a lot of benefits and, and the primary one is that of soil building, uh, increasing soil organic matter and soil carbon. And they do that in a number of ways. One is, they keep a living plant on the landscape and they keep a living root in the ground. And those roots are, are taking that energy and from the sun, turning it into carbohydrates. There's root exudates that are going into the soil. It's feeding the biology. It's powering all of those underground ecosystems of soil microbes and, and fungi and, and really, uh, really creating the, the soil diversity and, and uh, or, feeding the organisms in there. And that helps build up that soil organic matter. And one of the reasons you wanna build up soil organic matter in conjunction with climate is the more organic matter you have in there, the more water holding capacity you have, the, you know, it's, it's spongier, you're resisting compaction, you're catching more water. So if you have a, a, a big rain event, it soaks in rather than, than running off. So that, that's one of the reasons that the cover crops are so important and also rather than having that bare ground, you've got those plants and it's, it's armoring the soil, it's holding it together and you can prevent some erosion. So there's a, a number of benefits. Uh, and it, it also feeds into this idea that human agro ecosystems should as much as possible sort of pat, be patterned on and, and emulate natural systems. And natural systems almost never have bare ground. They also have, they always have a diversity of plants growing, you know, from the, as soon as the snow starts to go, you can see those green shoots coming out. And even, you know, beyond the time that the, it's freezing in the fall, you can still see bits of green there. So keeping that ground covered and green and growing and feeding that biology and building, building up that soil organic matter. That's one of the key things around cover crops. 
So is the ideal scenario to basically like over winter when people have like I'm thinking of root crops and I'm thinking specifically, obviously, of, of vegetable farmers. But if they've got a bunch of root crops and they've harvested them all, like a field of potatoes or a whole bunch of carrots or parsnips or onions or whatever, um, would the ideal cropping practice or management practices in terms of climate change be to throw in some kind of a cover crop seed as soon as the harvest is out so that it could perhaps start to um, grow, take root and, pre and provide some protection over the winter because our winters now were so unpredictable. It used to be that we pretty consistently had a, a fairly significant snow cover in most parts of BC, but now it's absolutely random in terms of when the snow comes, how long it stays, how much it warms up. And so is there a value through the winter to having a crop on the ground that will serve as some kind of a cover crop um, and protection for the soil through the spring planting? Yeah, it varies a bit from place to place uh, as to what you can do, what what works best. But in general, yeah, it's uh, it's always a good idea if if there's growing conditions, if there's moisture, if there's sunlight, if the temperatures are right, rather than having the ground uh, be bare to have something growing. Sometimes people seed that after the harvest. In some some places, the strategy is to seed it with the crop and then harvest the crop and the, the cover crop comes a little later. Maybe it's a clover or something like that that comes on later. And, and, and in some cases, uh, people are growing multiple crops in the same field. Uh, there's some talk about moving from, this is in cereal production, moving from spring cereals to fall cereals, et cetera. So anything you can do to keep that ground covered uh, as many growing days as possible, you should try and do that. So I definitely, so in my work with farm folk, city folk, we're uh, in the climate solutions. My my job is to come up with policy formulations for agriculture in BC and bring them to the Ministry of Agriculture. And we'll be engaging roundtables of farmers in BC to give us input and advice on what those policy formulations should be. But I'm very cognizant of the fact that BC has 20, 200 different commodity groups. And so there's definitely no one size fits all in this province. And I've been wrestling a lot with, so what are sort of optimal management practices and then the, the program and policy measures to support them in cranberry production versus cattle production versus dairy production and tree fruit. It's all quite diverse. Um, do you in your uh, pondering see any common um, climate measures across all these very diverse sectors? Yeah, you, you really do need to take into account the specificity of the place and the production methods and the climate and all of that. So it, it really has to almost be worked out uh, region by region, farm by farm. But having said that, and, and not to, to take away from the, you know, that caveat that it is very place specific, we do know that, that most of the emissions on our farms come from three, so, three main sources. One, uh, nitrogen fertilizer use to uh, the, the methane emissions from, from ruminants we talked about before, and three from fossil fuel combustion. So the diesel in tractors and in trucks and natural gas to heat buildings and anything that produces heat, maybe um, heat for washing and processing, et cetera. So really it's those three main categories from a climate standpoint that we'd look at. So 
in British Columbia, if, if some of the production scale is smaller, uh, that gives you an opportunity to maybe look at things like battery electric tractors or far, you know, trucks, uh, vehicles on farms that don't produce emissions. I think your, your grid power is fairly clean, so you could charge those things without uh, large emissions. And in British Columbia, like the rest of Canada, we have to find a way to stop the increasing use of nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, in most provinces right now, nitrogen fertilizer continu use continues to go up and the emissions from nitrogen fertilizer continue to go up. So we need to find ways to use it efficiently and we need to find ways to maintain adequate production without, uh, without as much nitrogen fertilizer. So uh, we're speaking primarily to an audience of organic farmers. And um, as I said before, I have a definite um, soft spot and uh, long standing relationship with the organic farming community. But I also know, I vividly remember being at a, at a COABC conference a number of years ago and uh, hanging out near the back and connecting with some of the other people that were hanging out at the back. And in conversation with a couple of them, they talked about, they, they came to learn, they were organic curious, and they wanted to see what it was all about. But they talked about feeling like they were second class citizens in the context of the, the what they'd heard and experienced over the course of that conference. Um, I've been also at conventions of the National Farmers Union, and been enormously impressed by the diversity that's there, the passion the values base that the National Farmers Union embraces and many of the many of the reports and the policy priorities of the National Farmers Union are, um, I think, entirely laudable and I support them. So all of which to say is how do we ensure that organic farmers can be recognized for the expertise that they have in terms of alternative fertilizer uses, non-synthetic fertilizer uses, their expertise in building soil, soil health. Um, how, do we, how do we help the larger uh, farming community to understand, respect, and embrace the leadership that I think that the organic farmers can demonstrate in this very critical need to address climate change? One of the ways we help people think about and understand emissions is to say something that, that on the face of it's quite provocative and that is farming does not produce greenhouse gas emissions. Agricultural inputs produce greenhouse gas emissions. And people initially don't, you know, they, they sort of don't think that's, that's right. But what, what we ask them to think about is, well, we've had 10,000 years of agriculture and for 9,900 years, it didn't affect the atmosphere or the climate. So clearly it's not agriculture that is affecting the atmosphere and the climate. There was no real net emissions at all from human agriculture before the early 20th century. So it's, it's clearly the inputs that we're pushing in. The, the emissions that are coming out of agriculture are more or less a direct function of the emissions we, or the, the inputs we push in. And, and that's where organic farmers come in only a, a, a fraction of Canadian acreage is probably going to be organic. Uh, you, you couldn't increase it tenfold and twentyfold. The, the supply would exceed the demand, and you'd lose uh, you'd lose premiums, etc. So, it's going to remain the case that most of the land in Canada is probably going to be farmed by non-organic farmers. So, we need to find ways to move all farms 
toward lower emissions. And if it's inputs that are the problem around emissions, we have to find ways for all farmers to start using fewer and fewer inputs. And that's why in our uh, Tackling the Farm Crisis and Climate Crisis report, we talk about a hybrid system that fuses all the best aspects of conventional agriculture with all the best aspects of organic. So from conventional agriculture, we might take uh, practices where farmers don't till as much. Uh, on the prairies where I live, reduced tillages helped a lot in terms of stopping soil erosion and, and building organic matter and carbon. Uh, but on the organic side, what we might want to take there is all the knowledge that organic farmers have around getting fertility without buying it, finding ways to get more of your nitrogen from biology and less from industry. So we, we, we've been advocating a, a hybrid approach to really get non-organic farmers interested in what organic farmers are doing and vice versa and move all the farmers toward a, a low input model. So I, I think the two camps, while they've, they've so often been kind of uh, at odds and separated, in the future, I think there's gonna be a convergence. And uh, I know a lot of organic farmers uh, are interested in figuring out how to till a bit less and they can learn that from conventional and the conventional farmers, as they're encouraged to use less nitrogen fertilizer, they're going to get more curious about how the organic people are, are making do with little or no purchased fertility. Well, I don't think there's, uh, there's certainly a lot of purchased amendments that go into organic farms, but I'll never forget, um, I had the incredible privilege of being part of the South Asia Canada Dialogue, which happened in the early 2000s. And it was a, it was a cultural, agricultural cultural exchange between Canadian farmers and farmers from five countries in Southeast Asia. And um, I, I managed their tour in British Columbia of organic farms, and some of the listeners may well have had us on their farms. But we also got the privilege to go to India and to Nepal and tour farms there. And I, I was profoundly struck by touring farms of peasant farmers in India and run by Dalit women who were illiterate and who had like the lowest possible opportunities within the Indian caste society. And yet the incredible skills they had at seed saving and the biodiversity that they were exhibited in every one of their fields, uh, intercropping was absolutely standard practice. And um, that, was, that was amazing to see. And of course it's all hand labor. So no fossil fuels, if there was, if it wasn't human labor, it was the animal labor. But the thing that struck me the most was the absolutely closed cycle of soil fertility. And um, it was enforced upon them because of lack of financial resources, but their own incredible ingenuity and wisdom and attention to the ecosystems and all of the resources that they had on hand enabled them to have closed cycles, closed systems on their farms. And so I've carried that with me ever since because, um, you know, if they can do it there, surely we can figure out how to do it here. So uh, for me, it's sort of an aspirational goal. I am not a farmer myself, and I certainly know that the decisions farmers make every day are extraordinarily hard and complex and have many, many different pressures. So I'm never going to try and um, enforce my own um, ideals on anyone else, but I, I have carried that vision of those incredibly biodiverse, really nutrient dense 
uh, fields and food systems with me to this day. Yeah, the, the idea of closed cycles is really key. And, and it's really core to the whole idea of sustainability. It, it's funny, we often act as if we don't know what sustainability is, but it, it's really clear. I mean, nothing can be clear. Sustainability is simply circular flows of material powered by solar energy. And we know that's the definition of sustainability because that's how every natural system has worked for the better part of a billion years. They all move carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, hydrogen, oxygen, water, seeds, everything in nature goes around in a circle. There's no throughput, there's no mines at one end and dumping grounds at the other. Everything is cycled as much as possible. And human agriculture, because it emerged out of and was completely dependent upon natural systems, similarly for 99% for of the time it has existed, has been based on those closed loops, those circular flows of fertility, of seed, of energy, even, even of knowledge. And uh, you, know, you mentioned these wonderful seed savers, et cetera. There was this, this loop of knowledge where the, the farmers would take observations from the landscape and internalize those and then they'd externalize that it back into the landscape in terms of planning and, and growing and decisions so there was this circular flow there and in the last hundred years we did something completely unprecedented uh, on the planet and in human history and that is we, we created these linear flow systems and we, we cracked open all of those closed loops and we stretch them out and made them linear and we jam ever larger quantities of fossil fuel created inputs into one end and we push a lot of food out the other end but we also push a lot of uh, emissions and toxins and various other things out the other end as well so the future of agriculture if it is to be sustainable it has to again embody that that core definition of sustainability and it needs to start moving materials and circular flows again. So it needs to move its fertility and its seeds and other things in circular flows. And it needs to stop being fossil fueled. You know, fossil fueled linear flow systems are the antithesis, literally, of sustainability. That's very well said. I also love the point you made earlier that fertility needs to come from biology, not industry. I think those are very key points. Um, one of the other big influencers on my life, other than pretty much every conversation I've ever had where I've listened carefully to the many farmers I've had the benefit of spending time with, has been Richard Walker. And I don't think he gets the kind of recognition that he should, but he, he's one of Canada's premier and earlier agroforestry um, advocates and educator. And he used to have an amazing farm that was a donkey field in Grand Forks. And he, he made it into this amazing, abundant um, agroforest over a remarkably short period of time where the succession of planting uh, for perennials as well as annuals was, was based on like a 30-year, 50-year uh, timeframe rather than this season. And I'll never forget him talking about that he sought to mimic the fertility cycles of a forest and so all of his trees the leaf drop would stay there because it was an important part of the nutrient cycling of that ecosystem and he would plant um, various uh, annuals or perennials but all the different stories within his agroforest were so much a part of uh, an integrated biosystem that was unbelievably fertile 
and and just a delight to spend time in. So um, I've never forgotten that. And every I think of him pretty much every time I walk through a forest where I go off the path at all, and you can feel how rich and spongy the soil is beneath your feet when you walk in the forest like that. So um, I agree that those circular systems are the ones we need to aspire to. And I, I mean, some of the farmers that I know, that's exactly what they're they're seeking to do. So I know we're probably heading out of time and are running out of time. And I also know that um, I'm going to bring up a topic that we haven't uh, talked about in advance, but I think is really important. CWBC, going back quite a few years, has recognized that in British Columbia, um, much of the land is unceded territory. We There was an incredibly vibrant, uh, many nation uh, population that lived in this place that became, that was is called by some British Columbia. And um, CYBC has been working over a number of years of recognizing that and learning what it means for people in agriculture because agriculture has been one of the most effective tools of colonialism uh, on the prairies as well as in Canada, as well as in British Columbia. And uh, I read a book that also had a rather significant impact on me. It's, it's by John Thistle and it's called Resettling the Range. And the subtitle is Animals, Ecologies, and Human Communities in British Columbia. And um, it really struck me because I, I will always love grass-finished beef, as I said earlier, and I grew up on it. And um, I like to see cattle on the landscape, but I'm also very aware, particularly after reading John Thistle's book, that um, the development of the cattle sector in BC was had a huge, huge impact on the ecosystems here and on the indigenous communities here and, and ultimately on the creation of the Indian reserves and also on their um, how they were made smaller and smaller over time as the priority of the cattle industry dominated so much of how the land was managed and who had access to it. So I don't, I don't really know that there's um, there's a there's so much to say here, um, but there's no easy solution or path forward. And I guess I would just like to make a call out to some of the ranchers that I know, uh, like Dave Zender and another Dave, Dave Zernhelt. There's really admirable people and families who um, are taking action in recognition of this colonial reality. And uh, if they and their fam family um, own, as we understand it in the colonial system, own the land, and they recognize that they are on unceded land, they're taking measures to find ways to come into a relationship of justice with the Indigenous people that are native to that area and um, find ways to make sure that maybe there's a, a collaborative, cooperative way to make a living from those shared spaces. So, um, I, I always have um, a tension in my relationship with cattle uh, for so many in so many ways because I I love uh, I, there's much I love about it but also I recognize that um, it's it's been a problematic tool and definitely has a key role to play in the climate change and the and the truth and reconciliation process that I think many of us are committed to. Yeah, and I would just add to the just the not just damage, but the almost complete 
uh, destruction of indigenous food systems. You know, it's it's a land issue, but tied to that is is indigenous food systems and access to those foods. And um, you know, I think settler colonial agriculture, uh, cattle farmers sometimes feel that corporate power is really making it hard for them to do what they want to do. But uh, it's it's ten times the effects are ten times worse when it comes to the effects on indigenous food systems and their access to their traditional foods. Yeah, so we've got a long, long way to go down that path. Um, I know there's uh, there's been some really important legal decisions and uh, nations all across Canada are, so-called Canada, are um, stating the need to address the land issue, land back. It's happening across uh, this this continent across Turtle Island, and I think it's a really important part of the dialogue. So thank you for hearing me and letting me bring that into the conversation. For sure, thanks. So I think that's all the questions that I had. Is there any any last points you'd like to make, Darren? Well, I, I just want to end by saying that in in all we raise a lot of problems, whether it be nitrogen fertilizer or or some of the uh, emissions around cattle. But my experience working with farmers is just a growing awareness and, and growing wish to be part of the solution and a real eagerness to learn more about this um, for a whole number of reasons. One, people are, are getting more concerned by what they're seeing in the climate and the way it's, it's hitting their farms, but also they, they really wanna be part of the solution and I think the third part too is um, farmers also realize that they need to take the lead on this. And if farmers don't take the lead in finding ways to reduce emissions in ways that support their farms, uh, someone else is going to, to make those decisions, academics or, or government uh, bureaucrats or someone else, and that might not be so good for us. But the other thing too is what the National Farmers Union has identified is the climate crisis opens a door. If, if you look at the 1980s and 90s and 2020s, 2000s, uh, the trend lines were all going in, in the wrong direction. You know, rapid loss of farmers, concentration, uh, increasing debt, uh, just about every metric around agriculture was going in the wrong direction. A lot of it was driven by agribusiness taking an ever tighter hold of seeds and there was mergers in the fertilizer sector and all through the agri-food chain, corporations were tightening their grip and they were expelling farmers. Uh, we've lost over two thirds of the young farmers since the early 1990s. But the climate crisis really sort of opens a door because business as usual can't continue. This high input production focused form of agriculture can't continue. And, and we're gonna to have to start making some changes. And what we think is if farmers embrace this and, and, and sort of take control a little bit, we have the opportunity to make the changes in agriculture in Canada that we wanna make. Climate change forces us to make some changes, but it also opens the door for us to make a lot of other changes that, that we wanna make. So it is both uh, a threat and, and a problem but to some extent, it's also an opportunity to, to restructure the system, uh, free farmers from some, to some extent from the, the grip of these input suppliers, free farmers 
from the agribusiness corporations and maybe establish a new foundation that will lead to better farm incomes, more stable farm incomes, and if, you know, slow the loss of farmers and maybe begin to increase the number of farmers on the land. That would certainly be great. And I know that at Farm Folks, City Folks, through Climate Solutions, as well as other projects, we're doing our best to support farmers. But we also fully recognize that um, all of us are involved in this. And uh, the Climate Solutions Project, of which I'm a part, has a piece around identifying the farmer leaders, the people who are already taking action or are really interested in being involved in being part of the Climate Solutions in the province. And I think that's really important. And Farm Folk City Folk is helping convene them and amplify their voices, but also fully recognizing that the consumers as eaters and as um, policy advocates can really help um, make the change that will in fact do as you suggested, which is to have more farmers who are making a better living and helping contribute overall to our food sovereignty, because I think ultimately that's that's a pretty admirable goal and one that's increasingly urgent in this crazy world that we're living in. Yes, indeed. Well, I really, really appreciate your time today, Darren, and um, I look forward to hearing you again in the next whatever it is you're going to be talking about. Thanks, Abra. And I'll, I'll just mention those two reports one more time. Uh, 2019, Tackling the Farm Crisis and the Climate Crisis and 2008, the farm crisis and the cattle sector. And they provide a lot of background for the conversation we were having today. And if anybody wants to find them, they'll be at nfu.ca in their report section. That's right, nfu.ca. And also go to uh, www.farmersforclimatesolutions.ca for a whole bunch of other great information on how farmers are taking action to uh, reduce emissions and deal with climate change. Great. Thanks so much, Darren. Thank you, Abros. Pleasure. Okay, that's it for this episode, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. A couple reminders for you. On February 27th, we hope to be able to offer some socially distanced farm tours around the province. There will also be an online auction in the lead up to the online gathering on February 28th. To learn more about both of those, go find the email associated with your conference ticket purchase and click the link to access our online conference info pages on Eventbrite, which is the website where you bought your ticket. That's about it. I'm Jordan Marr, your conference coordinator and MC, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>